Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, welcome to Twimmel's AI Rewind 2020, where we reconnect with guests of the show and talk through some of the biggest trends of the year. For this edition, I am here with Michael Bronstein. Michael is a professor at Imperial College London and head of graph machine learning at Twitter. Michael, welcome back to the Twimmel AI podcast. Thank you, Sam. Great to be here again. It's great to have you back on the show. Uh, as folks know, with our AI Rewind shows, we reconnect with past guests of the show and talk through some of the trends that are making waves, so to speak, in uh, particular areas of AI. And we've got a big task here in general. Machine learning and deep learning covers a, uh, a lot. So we're going to be leaning heavily on your area of expertise, graph machine learning. But to get us started, I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of broad brushstrokes. You know, what have you seen out of the the field at large this year? Well, I think there has been a lot of uh, things going on, both in the field and I would say broadly in the world. So uh, obviously the, the pandemic, uh, which has changed both the way that we work, the way that we attend conferences. So for the first time, we've seen conferences done in virtual format. And surprisingly, everything worked. Big companies uh, switching from uh, maybe a few percent of employees that were working remotely now to 100% of employees working remotely. And uh, surprisingly, this also worked uh, nicely while uh, talking about research in the academic environment as well. So all the students now are working from home, uh, in different places, different countries. So uh, with maybe a few hiccups in the beginning, this also this also uh, at the end worked uh, worked out nicely. So uh, this is on the one hand. On the other hand, the pandemic itself, the coronavirus and the, the related COVID-19 disease has become also a, a big focus for many people that are maybe even remotely related to, to medicine as uh, myself. So we try to do uh, our best to try to contribute to the global scientific effort, uh, research effort to, to address in some way this pandemic. And we've seen a lot of interesting works in that direction. So that, that was another highlight of the year, in a sense. Then many other prominent topics. So one of them, for example, discussions about uh, ethical aspects of machine learning. And I think we need to realize that this field is probably not some uh, corner and niche uh, mathematical uh, thing that doesn't affect the, the broader community. I think many of the, the methods and decisions that, that we make in this field might have broader impact. So it's important to discuss the ethical implications of the work that, that we are doing in this field. And there have been uh, many, uh, I would say, heated discussions, sometimes maybe not really conforming to, to the format I would expect from a civilized academic discussion to be. But I think it's important that these questions are being brought up and eventually addressed. Then uh, maybe specific things. So big breakthrough in natural language processing the, the, the famous uh, generative pre-trained transformer model, so the, the third iteration of HGPT-3, which uh, is a deep language model that is already capable of uh, synthesizing text that is almost indistinguishable from human-written text, and uh, probably one of the biggest and also most expensive models uh, to train. 
and uh, a lot of argument as well of people in the community and outside the, uh, of the community whether this can be considered the first step towards uh, general artificial intelligence and uh, the, the usual discussion that you see in the field between uh, representatives of let's say the, the deep learning community versus uh, their the critics such as Gary Marcos arguing that this is not uh, not even close so it's uh, doesn't really understand anything uh, about it. On that? so I believe this it, it, it doesn't have a clue about the language so it's uh, it produces uh, results that are plausible uh, and uh, personally I have not uh, worked with this model so it's uh, take it with a grain of salt but the examples I've seen, they are indicative that there is still a lot to go. Still, the, the progress is impressive. It's, uh, it, it, really, uh, it is really something that uh, I could not imagine that would happen, let's say, five years ago. Mm -hmm. Before we get further in, you mentioned some of the applications of machine learning to the pandemic. Are there any standouts in your mind or any, any particular efforts that you can mention? Well, so a lot of things from the analysis of, uh, for example, uh, tracking people and how they spread the pandemic. So a lot of modeling, mathematical modeling of, uh, of the epidemic to uh, drug development and drug repositioning. So I would say that the former is probably more successful because it's also much shorter time. This is a kind of data that you can quickly collect from let's say social networks or tracking applications. I think it also highlighted some of the ethical and privacy risks that are related to, to tracking applications. So the, the, these are probably things that we will need to, to address in the future. I would say that a lot of this research was somehow cut short by the emergence of the vaccines. So this is really something that is, well, it's outside of our community, but still remarkable, probably first time ever that a vaccine is is uh, developed and approved in such a short time. So it's, it is really, well, being myself a scientist, maybe not in that domain, I still feel proud for the bigger scientific community and how uh, all these things has worked out as well. Or hopefully, at least, this is what, what it seems to be. Mm -hmm. But machine learning may have had an even bigger impact if we didn't have a vaccine come about so quickly. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that many of the things that uh, might uh, be already coming a bit too late, hopefully for the coronavirus, will still be important against other diseases. And uh, again, we have a pandemic that is that is uh, uh, maybe currently a healthcare urgency, but we, the other diseases that, that we are suffering from, like cancer, are still around and will not uh, get away uh, anytime soon. So, so the, 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 the methods that have been developed for infectious diseases such as COVID might uh, be repurposed for other things. Mm -hmm. And, and you also mentioned ethics in machine learning and some of the, you kind of made reference to what I interpreted as some of the kind of broad community conversations. I guess I, I the picture in my head was, you know, Twitter type conversations or uh, do you follow the specific research in that community? Are there any papers that stood out to you or developments from a research perspective in that on the ethics side? Well, uh, of course, like everyone, probably uh, probably more uh, on, on the popular side. So I don't think that I have a very educated opinion. And well, probably I can consider myself also somebody that is less affected by, by some of the, the implications of uh, being probably more on the, on the privileged side of the, the, the community. 
Yeah, so I, I was referring particularly to discussions on, on the social media, and some of them were probably not uh, not exactly done in, in, in the way that, that one would expect in an academic discussion. I, I would like to make maybe two points. Well, and uh, I, sorry, this is rather charged topic, so so and people are uh, some on probably are quite opinionated. So just uh, just a couple of observations, and this is not necessarily expressing an opinion. So one thing that that I see is that. A lot of the discussion is really U.S. focused. So uh, talking about uh, ethics in particular, about, for example, racial bias. And indeed, it's an important topic. So it, it has real life implications. But probably uh, if you take, again, if you zoom out and look at the broader picture. So people discuss a lot, for example, the, the, the cropping uh, algorithm on Twitter that might crop out black faces. But nobody talks about face recognition, for example, that is being used by Chinese government for uh, repressive purposes. So uh, somehow I, I feel that maybe the discussion should again be, be positioned in a global context and and and, and be more uh, uh, maybe cover broad more broadly the the, the different uh, the different implications. Second thing, uh, if we think of machine learning ethics and the possible consequences of uh, uh, of certain machine learning algorithms, of course there are many real life implications. M much of the research though in this field is probably doesn't have immediate ethical consequences and might be even innocuous, well, at least in the short perspective. There are fields where ethical problems uh, can literally cost thousands of lives. If you take, for example, health policy, healthcare, medicine. So researchers working in these fields deal with these questions on a daily basis. And probably the pandemic also highlighted the, the, the urgency and, 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 and the importance of these questions. So again, if we zoom out and look at our field, and as part of science broadly, we should probably take it also in the right proportion. So I'm not at all trying to say that this is not important, not at all. I think this is a really important topic, but again, uh, probably we should take it in the right context and in the right proportion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you, I'm not a, an expert in this particular area, but one of the things that has struck me as promising over the past year or a couple of years is that I think early on, the impression that I had was that, you know, we as a field of technologists, machine learning, you know, people were trying to reinvent ethics. And now it seems much more the case that, you know, we're pulling in uh, and collaborating with experts from some of the fields that you mentioned who have been studying these kinds of problems, you know, from different angles and in different ways uh, for a long time. And I think that that is kind of helping to advance the way we're thinking about these types of issues, you know, that I do not disagree that different communities tend to get zoomed in on, on different areas, but I, I do think there's this broader, you know, interdisciplinary and, and cross community collaboration starting to happen when, in that field that's promising. I, I totally agree with this point, with this view. And I think that we have a lot to learn from other fields. I think machine learning and artificial intelligence does have unique problems in ethics that, that are probably not do not exist in other fields and they, this is what probably makes it interesting academically uh, in, for people that, that do serious research in uh, in the ethics of artificial intelligence and being not an expert uh, i think my uh, opinion is rather ill-informed so you mentioned GPT-3. We're not going to go into that in any detail uh, because we did an AI rewind focused on NLP and spent quite a bit of time talking about GPT-3. Uh, in fact, it'll probably already be out by the time this interview is published. Uh, what's the next kind of 
major you know theme on your list speaking generally about mldl this year right well so computer vision which is a uh, uh, kind of uh, field close to my heart i think at least judging from the the, the, the conference and the, the kind of papers that were presented and especially looking at the papers that, that got into shortlist uh, runner-ups for uh, for best paper awards and the papers that won the best paper awards it's mainly geometry with machine learning so some kind of geometric ml or geometric uh, dl and uh for me i think i mentioned it also last time when when we talked it's a kind of vindication since for for years this field of computer vision has been to some extent quite adverse to geometry and now it's everywhere mm-hmm. so it's it's interesting to see it and uh, in particular one topic that, that i found myself interested in is this emergence of uh, implicit neural representations so they obviously they are not new implicit representations are probably older than myself it's a new way of parameterizing signals of different kinds in particular images so if you think of conventional representations they are mostly discrete right so if you think of images they are arrays of pixels and uh, 3D shapes, for example, usually uh, discretizes point clouds or meshes. If you think of acoustic signals, they, they are just one-dimensional grid of, of samples. Implicit representations are a different way of parameterizing signals as some continuous function on the coordinates of the domain on which it is defined. And these functions usually do not have analytical expression, so they are usually not tractable. You cannot just write a formula to compute it. But the new bit that comes with deep learning is that you can approximate them with neural networks efficiently. And that's the new part, because implicit representations, as I mentioned, have been used forever in different fields. And there are uh, interesting benefits. I think there have not been uh, fully explored yet. And one obvious benefit is that they are not limited by the spatial resolution anymore. So, for example, uh, in an image, uh, the resolution is limited by the number of pixels. And in a sense, implicit representations have infinite resolution. It's just how many samples you get from it. As a result, also, the memory footprint is independent on the resolution. So you can you can create any resolution you want. The number of parameters uh, that you use to represent this image or this acoustic signal or whatever you, you choose to represent implicitly doesn't uh, depend on the, uh, on the number of samples you produce from it. And uh, the main interesting questions are uh, now when you design algorithms that operate on these representations, let's say convolutional neural networks that would operate on an image, what is the analogy of convolution in this implicit representation? So that's the the cool stuff, in my opinion, and uh, I I believe that we'll see more of this in 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 the coming years. Interesting. Is there a, a specific example of an implicit representation in you know, in the image or, or another domain that um, you can point us to? Well, there are many, so it doesn't, doesn't need to be a single one. So you can represent, uh, for example, uh, functions in general as uh, as combination of some, some blobs, like Gaussian kernels, for example. Uh, there are many implicit representations, such as splines, for example. It could be distance functions, level sets. So all of these representations have different flavors and have been used in the past for, for many years. But again, the neural uh, implicit representation is the new bit that comes with deep learning. Nice, nice. Awesome. And uh, how about in your domain on the, the graph side of things? I continue to hear a ton of, you know, a ton about graphs and papers applying graphs in, in new and different ways. What are you seeing there? Well, for graphs, uh, really a lot. I, I should say that I find it hard to, to follow all the papers that, that um, 
are published in this domain. And this is really uh, one of the most prominent topics currently in machine learning. So from niche, these methods have already become standard tool set in machine learning. So we see a lot of applications and a lot of different uh, aspects of, uh, of these methods. So several things that, that, that I've seen prominently in this year, addressing scalability issues. So how to scale up a graph neural networks to, to large scale graphs. Addressing uh, theoretical questions, uh, for example, the expressive power of graph neural networks. So this is something that already started last year. And this year we've seen many works that, that went in this direction. So probably more interesting what graph neural networks cannot express and cannot learn. So basically these kind of limitations. Interesting works on uh, adversarial robustness. So how can you attack graph neural networks? How can you guarantee some uh, performance in, in case of such adversarial uh, attacks, which is important if these methods are already being picked up by the industry and used in production systems, we need to understand how vulnerable potentially these uh, systems are. Now, some particular papers that I like personally, so I would highlight a couple. One is by Petr Vilishkovic from uh, DeepMind about neural execution of graph algorithms. So I think this is really cool paper by itself, but also interesting direction. So basically what they show is that you can use graph neural networks to learn individual steps of classical graph algorithms, such as, for example, shortest distance uh, Dijkstra algorithm, which can be both parallel and sequential algorithms. And the, the, the issue is that graph, uh, graph algorithms usually rely on making some decisions in a local neighborhood. Well, not everyone, but some graph algorithms. And that's why it is not surprising in a sense that they're well suited for graph neural networks that also operate locally in the form of a message passing. What is interesting is that they show in the paper also that graph neural networks appear to be capable of transfer between different tasks. So for example, if you're learning a shortest path algorithm, it can be substantially improved when at the same time you're also learning a reachability algorithm. So this is something that is pretty new. And uh, the hope here is that maybe uh, you can learn some heuristics that uh, will be new and previously unknown in graph theory. And we are talking about classical algorithms that have been researched to death. You have performance bounds. You can tell uh, when uh, they work in the worst case, when they work in the in the best case. But uh, still, there is a big gap between what is the worst case and the best case. So uh, heuristics might be important. So Petr, the way that, uh, that that he likes of thinking of this is a kind of algorithmic reasoning. And this is probably going beyond deep learning and towards uh, a kind of explainable machine learning. So when you can think of an algorithm where, where you have more structure than, than, just, uh, than, than just a neural network. And, and so is the idea with this paper that the you kind of mentioned, mentioned the spectrum of performance for classical algorithms is the idea that the you know using a neural network will get us better performance for these specific algorithms or that um, you mentioned the heuristics how would you apply the the heuristics uh, in the case of these algorithms that have been researched to death or these problems rather that have been researched to death right well so this is this is a broad topic so probably certain types of algorithms or certain types of graph problems, let's say those with polynomial complexity, can probably be efficiently, and especially those with local structure, can be efficiently approximated by, by graph neural networks because graph neural networks also uh, have local structure and they also uh, they, they also have polynomial complexity. 
-hmm. Now, when we are talking about computations such as shortest distance, in many cases, you don't need to compute it exactly. So if you think of applications like, I don't know, prediction of, uh, of travel time in Google Maps, you don't really need to know it to, to, the, to, the, uh, to a fraction of a second. So a good approximation that can, uh, they can take much less time than if it ran exactly would also, would also work well. So that's, that, that's, that, that's what I'm talking about, uh, heuristics in this case. So you might, you, you might have some trade-off between complexity and accuracy and uh, performance in terms of the, the runtime, also maybe performance in, in terms of memory. So it uh, opens a lot of different possibilities. Got it. And so what were the primary um, metrics that were, uh, were they, was this paper uh, specifically comparing against between the kind of classical approaches to these problems and neural approach and looking at performance and runtime and these traditional metrics? Right, right. That, that's, that's exactly what, uh, what they did. Got it. Awesome. What's the next paper on your list? Right. So another one, which is more, uh, well, I wouldn't even call it a theoretical paper. So that was a paper on the bottleneck of graph neural networks and uh, their practical implications. And uh, this was a, a paper from uh, the group from Israel. And they showed that uh, message passing graph neural networks, which is the majority of currently available architectures, are inefficient in some settings. And in particular, what they show is that when you have a problem that depends on long distance interactions in a graph. So basically when you need to do a prediction on a node, let's say that depends on uh, information from uh, nodes that are uh, a few uh, hops removed. And when the structure of the graph is such where the number of nodes grows very fast exponentially, like in, in small world graphs, then message passing works inefficiently. And the reason for this is that there is this bottleneck phenomenon that you have a lot of feature vectors from your neighbors that you need to squeeze into a single vector. And uh, they analyze this behavior and they propose uh, a very simple method that works surprisingly well, which is rewiring the graph. So they add a layer, uh, a fully connected layer, where basically uh, you can aggregate, you can propagate information from all uh, nodes to all nodes. So it's like fully connected graph. And this is, uh, I wouldn't say that this is very surprising because this has been observed many times, so probably the first time they call this beast by its name. Also, the bottleneck exists in other, uh, in other uh, deep learning uh, architectures, such as, uh, such as sequential models. But in graphs, I think it's important to, to call it by its name. And it's, it relates to the question whether depth is needed in graph neural networks. We, call, we talk about deep learning, right? And we talk about deep graph neural networks, but actually most of them are not really deep. So if you look at most applications, they're kind of shy of saying that uh, we call it a deep architecture, but in fact, we have maybe two graph convolutional layers. And there have been a lot of works trying to go deeper with graph neural networks. I would say partially successful. And it seems that it's difficult to get, on the one hand, to, to do deep graph architectures. On the other hand, uh, it seems that it, it doesn't really help in many cases. So this question, when depth is important for graph neural networks, is not fully understood. At least I, uh, speaking about myself, I don't have a clear answer to this. And I wrote a somewhat controversial uh, blog post that, that uh, depth is considered harmful. I think it attracted uh, some sort of criticism in, uh, in the community, but many people agree that, that we don't fully understand it. So this is probably one important step towards uh, realizing this problem and uh, then maybe going beyond. So there, there are actually two things that can be done potentially to, to overcome this problem. 
One of them is to decouple the input graph from the computational graph. So the graph that you use to propagate messages doesn't necessarily need to be the same graph that is provided as the input to the graph neural network. And this kind of has been explored in the past. So whether it's the, the sample and aggregate architecture, such as uh, GraphSage, which uses graph sampling, so, so you can think of it as a kind of way of changing the, the, the graph for message passing, as well as other uh, papers such as uh, Deagle Diffusion Improves Graph Learning. So this is a paper from the group of Stefan Gunemann in Munich. They uh, rewired the graph using uh, personalized page rank and used uh, that new graph to propagate messages on the, on, uh, uh, in the graph neural network with the argument that uh, this uh, acts as a kind of denoising of the input graph. So I think what we'll see in the next year is probably several ways of uh, going in these directions, rethinking the message passing algorithms, maybe going in, in, in into higher order structures, so along the, the directions of topological data analysis, and second, rethinking the entire idea of using the same graph for uh, computation input. So basically, uh, maybe building the computational graph on the fly and making it problem-specific and problem-optimal. I don't think I had realized that the the input graph, the graph that the network was operating on, was typically so linked to the computational graph. I thought those were totally different, totally different. Well, in some, in some architectures, uh, they are different, uh, but in some others, uh, they are, you, you stick to the same graph. So you usually look at your neighbors, maybe you just subsample it. So there are many reasons uh, why you want to decouple, uh, decouple them, and uh, this paper actually indicates that it might be a good idea. Mm -hmm. And in the in the discussion of this paper, you talked about uh, kind of introduced it by talking about depth and um, kind of the distance between interactions in the graph. Those concepts can apply kind of equally to the the graph that you're operating on, as well as the computational graph. In this case, you are, were they the same, or were you referring to the computational graph in particular? Well, I'm talking about the number of layers that you apply in, in the convolutional network. And it is interesting, actually, that uh, in this sense, graphs are very different from images. So in images, somehow the common wisdom is to use many layers, but small filters. So basically, that, that touch just a few hops uh, around each pixel. Usually, these are maybe three by three or even one by one convolutions. But the network can be as deep as a few tens or even hundreds of layers. And the reason for this is obviously, besides computational efficiency, is also that you can compose complex functions from simple ones. And uh, this is often visualized in, for example, in, in facial images that you start with uh, some primitive geometric features such as corners, uh, directed edges. And then as you go deeper, more complex structures emerge, and then you get the grandmother neurons, which respond to a specific phase. So it seems that nothing like this exists in graphs, or at least only partially. So we don't have this kind of compositionality. Certain structures cannot be computed no matter how deep you go. So if you think of even such trivial structures, triangles, you cannot count them by simple message passing. So that was actually one of the highlights of the previous year, the, showing the equivalence between Weisferrer lemon graph isomorphism tests and uh, message passing graph neural networks. So uh, these, uh, uh, these algorithms cannot count triangles and graphs. On the other hand, there are works that show that certain functions or certain properties of graphs cannot be computed unless you have certain depth. So somehow you, you, we are caught in between. So 
I don't think that there is a clear understanding of what can be computed and require certain depth and what uh, cannot be computed, no matter how deep you go. So this is only one part of the picture. I should say that most of the focus has been on the expressive power. And this is obviously only one side. The second side is generalization. So you can think of a graph neural network that is very expressive, but fails to generalize at all. On, on, or on the other hand, a very simple model that is not very expressive, but is very generalizable. So understanding the, the generalization is much more complex problem. And I hope that next year we'll see more works in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have the same, uh, is there kind of an analog to the intuition around layers in a CNN that you described where, you know, the early ones are looking at kind of coarse, you know, textures and directions and, and things like that. And the later ones are more focused on fine tuning. Um, can we look at a graph neural network and have the same or similar types of intuitions about what different parts of the, the network are doing? Not, not, not really. So it's, uh, it's rather different. And, uh, and again, structures like, like triangles. So you would, you would think that you can compose them from nodes and edges, but actually you cannot. So I would argue that, that uh, here probably the analogy doesn't work and, and the two fields uh, depart quite, uh, quite significantly. I should mention also that in traditional uh, deep learning architectures, uh, there was a lot of interest in continuous models. The, the neural ODE paper and the follow-up works basically replaced the discrete layers with uh, with a continuous differential equation that, that evolution of the uh, of the of the features. So we see first works along the same direction in the graph literature as well. So this is also interesting direction that could probably somehow bypass this problem of depth by just saying that you have some continuous diffusion process. On the graph and the depth is the number of layers actually doesn't exist in continuous layers. Mm-hmm. Great. One of the areas that graph neural nets comes up in quite a bit is in things related to the healthcare and medicine spaces. And I think your next couple of papers are related to those areas. Right. So this is, I should say here, so we finally probably see real impact in these domains, but it's a kind of to me, it was surprising and to some extent disappointing that it comes not where I expected. So if you think of the, these biological and healthcare applications, you can model them as graphs at three different layers of resolution. So one is the molecular level, right? So you can think of molecules of drugs or the, the targets with which they are interact as, as graphs. The higher level of abstraction is what we can call intractomes. So these are interactions between different molecules, like proteins in our body or, or drugs and targets. And the, the highest level is maybe population networks. So different patients and their similarities and their maybe similar symptoms and, and so on. So graph neural networks and uh, research, well, not necessarily with graph neural networks, but uh, ML methods have been applied at all scales, in particular in the context of COVID. I think what is really what really seems to be working this year is uh, the lowest level. So predicting chemical properties of molecules, molecular graphs. And here, the paper that I think obviously comes to mind, it, it made quite a big splash also in the popular media, is uh, research from Jim Collins' lab at MIT about deep learning for uh, antibiotic discovery. So it appeared on the on the cover of Cell in the February issue, and it was widely reported in, in, the, in the popular press. And essentially, it's a graph neural network-based deep learning pipeline for the discovery of new antibiotic drugs. 
and uh, well, uh, now you, you may ask why antibiotics are important. Now we are, we are struggling with the coronavirus, but coronavirus is uh, just maybe an example of what might, uh, it might look like if we have an antibiotic-resistant pathogen that basically evades all the existing arsenal of antibiotics and becomes highly infectious. So we already have such bacteria, usually in the hospitals, and the people that, that are unlucky to get them are essentially uncurable, so usually they die. Fortunately, they are not so uh, contagious, so they don't become a pandemic, but it's probably a question of when rather than a question of if. And that's why there are many reasons why this happens. I'm not, uh, I, I'm not from the medical domain, so I would uh, only imagine that it's because we tend to prescribe and take antibiotics probably too freely when there is really no necessity for it. Maybe also the, the, the antibiotic content in food. And so on. the fact is that basically we are growing thin on the reserves and some antibiotics are used as a kind of last resort against uh, the, these, these rare pathogens. So what, what they did in this paper is a graph neural network that operates on molecular graphs that model the, the drug substance. And they try to predict the growth uh, inhibition of a bacteria, the E. coli, the classical uh, model organism that, that is used in biology, on a data set that contained actually pretty small by machine learning standards, about 2,000 molecules, which included the uh, uh, FDA-approved antibiotic drugs, the, the standard stuff that, that is given against uh, bacterial infections, and also some natural compounds from the plant and the animal kingdoms. So many animals, for example, they produce certain substances that, that have antibiotic effect. And the prediction was based purely on the molecular graph. So it didn't rely on any side information, such as the mechanism of action of the drug. Now, when they trained this model, then they applied it to what is called the drug repositioning hub. So it's it's a repository data set containing about 6,000 molecules of different drugs that are not yet approved, that they are currently under investigation. And uh, among the top candidates, they, uh, they, they selected uh, about 100 and did actually lab testing. So unlike... I would say most machine learning papers that, that work in the, in the biological field, they never go beyond, or most of them never go beyond the in silico predictions. So you, you, you can predict something computationally, but is it good or is it bad? You usually leave it to the, to the biologists or to, to the clinicians to test. And many of these uh, predictions do not really work. So here they did really the, probably the biggest part of the work was testing these hypotheses in the lab. So what uh, was surprising is that an anti-diabetic experimental drug called Halicin turned out to be uh, a powerful antibiotic that showed activity against uh, drug-resistant uh, bacteria in, uh, well, they tested it on mice, so you can also argue that it's probably still far cry from, from uh, efficiency in humans. But what was interesting that this was, the structure of this molecule was not very typical to, to, to other antibiotics. So it was different and it potentially indicates to the capability of this graph neural networks, uh, network to, to generalize well. So here I, I heard some criticism, and uh, maybe I should also voice uh, my bit of skepticism, is that it's not completely clear, or at least not completely clear to me, whether the predictive capability of this neural network really boils down to predicting a simple pattern that is responsible for this antibiotic action. And well, in the paper, they mention a mechanism that, that is a depolarization of the cellular membrane, which basically breaks the cell and, and kills the, the, the pathogen. And it could be that basically it is easy to, pre to, to predict this kind of structure or this kind of chemical property. And it might be that, that the, the network actually is learning something that is, doesn't require necessarily deep learning. But again, this is, I'm not an expert, so it probably, has, uh, uh, it, it probably requires deeper study. 
So they also uh, ran this uh, this predictor on a larger data set that is called Zinc 15. So this is a standard curated collection of commercial chemicals that is used for drug virtual screening in the industry, in the, the pharmaceutical industry. And there as well, the, the, the compounds that were identified by the Kraft Neural Network produced uh, antibiotic activity in, in lab tests. So, so this is really, this is probably out of the papers that, that, that exist on drug discovery with, uh, with machine learning, this is probably one that pushed it to the level which would probably be credible and acceptable by, by biologists and, and clinicians. So that, that's why I'm saying that this is probably the first evidence of real impact in this field. Nice. Do you have a sense for kind of what the future direction in, in, in that area is, in particular building on, on that paper? Right. So there are several things. So drugs are one application. Another is materials. So maybe this is some, somehow below the radar of most of us, or at least, uh, again, I'm not an expert, but you probably don't hear it about uh, about it in, in the popular press. It's very common to hear about new miracle drug that, that cures this or, or that disease. But new materials that might appear boring, but commercially they're extremely important. Let's say a new light-emitting diode that has better quantum efficiency and, I don't know, works better for certain applications. This is something that is, you will probably not hear in the popular press, but it's, uh, it is extremely important in some applications. So materials, again, these are molecules, uh, they have certain structure. Predicting their property and doing virtual screening is, is a very similar problem. So this is probably one of the fields where graph neural networks will will be uh, could shine potentially in the next in the next years. There is already a challenge I think organized by CMU and Facebook, if the memory doesn't uh, doesn't betray me, uh, that that uh, try to predict properties of materials. So similar to drug discovery, but for this more let's say more boring stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's boring actually. I think this is a very exciting problem as well. Nice, nice. Another popular one was the AlphaFold results. Well, so AlphaFold, uh, yeah. So this is this is really a breakthrough, I think. So, so what what is AlphaFold essentially? It's very accurate prediction of three dimensional protein structure from the amino acid sequence, and this is really a classical problem in bioinformatics. Basically, if you if you go back to, to how proteins, what what are proteins? These are probably the most important biomolecules that we have in our body and across all the life that we know on Earth. It's all based on uh, on proteins. They are encoded in our DNA, and they have really a zillion of different functions in our body. So chemically speaking, this is a, a biopolymer. So it's a chain of small building blocks that are called amino acids. And a good analogy is this kind of, I don't know if, you're, if you've ever seen it, snake toys. So it's a one-dimensional structure that you can fold in many different shapes. So that, that's how proteins work. So under uh, physical forces, they fold into a 3D conformation. And it is this conformation that gives them their functions. So they stick together like a kind of three-dimensional puzzle, and they uh, enable or disable some chemical reactions. So bottom line, it was hypothesized already in the 70s, I think, by a Nobel laureate that it is possible in principle to predict 3D structure from uh, the sequence of amino acids. And it turned out that this is a very difficult problem. The the search space, the, the, the number of degrees of freedom and possible configurations is extremely large. So the numbers I've seen, it's 10 to the power 300. So it's uh, unimaginably mind-boggling number, probably many orders of magnitude more than the number of particles in the universe. And uh, there is a, a competition that is that, that runs, uh, I think, on biennial basis uh, that is called, it's called CASP. So it's a kind of image net for structural biologists. And they try to predict the structure of uh, of proteins. 
So just to say uh, about structure. So the way that you get the structure, usually sometimes people call, call it solving the structure. So you use typically uh, good old crystallographic methods. So you need to crystallize the protein. You need to, to subject it to X-ray uh, diffraction, and then you get from it the, the, the 3D structure. So this is very capricious. Some proteins, for some reason, don't crystallize. It takes a lot of time. It, it is very expensive. The bottom line of this is that we have maybe less than 200,000 proteins with known crystal structure, so with a known 3D structure. On the other hand, the methods that produce the amino acid sequence are very cheap and reliable. And as a result, we have hundreds of millions of such sequences. So there is a big gap between the structures and the sequences. So what uh, AlphaFold tries to do is to predict the structure from the sequence of uh, amino acids. And they already made this debut in 2018 when they surpassed their, their other competitors in uh, this competition. But this year, first of all, not only that they beat by far the, the other algorithms that competed, they're a far cry, so this is really an ImageNet moment. And the second thing that it is already very good accuracy. So the, 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 usually it's measured in terms of uh, root mean square distance from the crown truth. So in that case, I think it was around 1.5 angstrom. So this is uh, very good by, by, by the standards of structural biology. I should say that because of the hype in the popular press, I think, and also especially use of somewhat relaxed scientific terminology, uh, computer scientists that are maybe not very familiar with this field. So a lot has been said about AlphaFold, what it can do or what it cannot do, that it might be not very accurate. Probably for drug development, it is still not accurate enough. Usually what is required for the accuracy that is required, at least on the binding side, is uh, sub-angstrom. But this is absolutely mind-blowing progress. And, well, I, I, I was expecting AlphaFold to emerge as a winner in this competition this year, but the, the, the extent to which it is better than anything else is, uh, is really remarkable. Now, in terms of the algorithm, well, I think everybody is eagerly waiting for, uh, for the paper to be published. So now they only have uh, the, a blog post, uh, which describes uh, very high-level principles of how it works. So they call it an attention-based neural network. So it's likely a transformer architecture that is trained end-to-end -end on proteins with a known structure. So it's uh, slightly less than 200,000 from the protein data bank as well as uh, sequences for which the structure is unknown. So what is important to mention here is that actually it uses evolutionary history of proteins. So we know that as, uh, as species evolve, then there is some change, some mutations in their DNA. As a result, the protein encoding parts of the DNA also change, and proteins that, that in different species might be different, but still they have similar function. So the, the similarity of protein sequences is sometimes indicative of the similarity of the structure. So AlphaFold and other algorithms in this field exploit these, uh, these one-dimensional uh, one similarities. Now, how exactly it works, I think it's not clear yet from the description. So I can only uh, make uh, maybe uh, somewhat uneducated predictions. From the blog post description, they model proteins as spatial contact graphs. And uh, what they write is that the neural network interprets the structure of this graph while reasoning over the implicit graph that it is building. So to me, it sounds like a kind of graph neural network with latent graph learning that actually tries to build the graph together with some, some reasoning or some learning on this graph. But there are probably many more details and more nuances, so that's why I'm saying take it with a grain of salt. It might be more than just a graph neural network or, or geometric ML. So the computational time is uh, also mind-boggling. Uh, mind I think it's uh, equivalent of several 
years of uh, GPU time. They use their special tensor uh, tensor proce processors that, that Google uh, that Google has internally, and the prediction of the structure takes a few days. So it is definitely a very difficult problem, and doing it properly with these levels of accuracy requires the unlimited resources that only Google and maybe a few other companies like this have. So again, uh, hard to say uh, anything more specific before seeing the paper. Is that a few days per structure? This is what I understand. I don't know. Do you have a sense for you know how long before this becomes uh, practically viable or useful, or you know the the current practical utility of it? Well, so the current practical utility, obviously, that you you now have at least approximately the three D structure for proteins that before that you didn't have the structure or you couldn't get the structure. So from fundamental biological standpoint, this is very important for drug development. It's a good question how immediately useful it will be, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised that Google is planning some kind of pharma uh, company on the side that, that would emerge from DeepMind. Uh, so uh, given these uh, remarkable capabilities that they have built in a matter of just a couple of years, I think they, they will be a strong contender and competitor to, to the traditional pharma industry if they chose to do it. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. Uh, I think you've got one more paper for us. What was that one? Yeah, well, so the, here I'm biased because I'm a co-author, even though I think most of the work was done by my collaborators that come from the domain of uh, protein design and, and structural biology. And this is our paper that actually appeared the same month uh, with the cell paper. It also appeared on the cover of Nature Methods. So I think we have a kind of good record this year for uh, geometric deep learning papers that appear on the covers of these uh, uh, important biological journals well, never happened before to, my, to, to the best of my knowledge. So the, this all by itself, I think, is, is already remarkable. So basically what we do in this paper is a geometric deep learning pipeline uh, that predicts interactions between proteins from their 3D structure. So unlike AlphaFold, we rely on the 3D structure, but only on the 3D structure. So it's a kind of the opposite. We don't need the evolutionary history. We don't need the sequence which is both advantage and disadvantage because it, it does contain a lot of information. But why it is advantage when we are talking about protein design, what is called de novo design, which is building a new protein from scratch that never existed before in nature, you don't really have this evolutionary history. It's, it's new. It's completely new. You, you don't have anything that is similar to it. So that's why you cannot rely on evolutionary history. So the way that, that we approach this problem is we hypothesize that for interaction, what matters is really the, the outside structure of the protein. And this is modeled as a protein surface. We discretize it as a mesh. And we apply geometric deep learning mesh convolutional neural networks. Actually, a pretty old architecture that was developed by my PhD student, Federico Monti, that, that uh, nowadays is my colleague at Twitter. And basically, on this surface, we have uh, geometric and chemical properties that, tend, uh, that tell how the protein is charged. And then we, we train this network on uh, examples also of proteins with given structure. So for interactions, we use proteins that are co-crystallized. So it's uh, it's a crystal structure of an entire protein complex crystallized together. And this gives us an indication of what things uh, stick together and what doesn't. So And we show that it produces results that are state-of-the-art. They are significantly better than competing approaches while also being faster. So here, because I am a co-author, I can also be more critical of this work. So I would say that this is really based on an old architecture that is uh, three or even four years old. 
it was something that more or less was available immediately when we started working on and on this topic. And actually, maybe uh, on the personal note, the way that I got into proteins is when uh, the two guys from EPFL, Bruno Correa and Pablo Gainza, uh, visited me at the time I was in Cambridge at Harvard on my sabbatical. And we spent a couple of days, I would say probably a week, on trying to, to, to get a prototype for, uh, for learning on these protein surfaces. And it worked initially pretty well, but then it took about two years to finish it and, and get it to, to, to a paper that was published in Nature Methods. So for a computer scientist, it's very frustrating to see when you, you see some computational results, but to get it to the level that would be credible for, for biologists, it takes a huge effort. Mm. And that's why, for example, I, I, I grew a kind of appreciation for these papers, like the, the Collins paper in Cell, that uh, the, probably 90% of the work was really getting it to the level that uh, would pass the bar in uh, one of these journals. So as I mentioned, the, the, these, the, these advantages of the, the, of the older architecture that we used was that it relied on pre-computed uh, mesh surfaces and pre-computed patches, pre-computed features. So it, is, it has many li limitations in the sense that, for example, you cannot train it end-to-end -end in a differentiable way. So if I were, were to modify the underlying protein structure, if I were to generate a new protein molecule, it, it is hard to work with this architecture. So we actually recently revamped, and today we published this on BioArchive, a new version of uh, Massive, uh, which is now, it operates directly on the atomic point cloud. So basically the, the 3D coordinates of the atoms that, that form the protein. It learns all the genetic and chemical features on the fly. It com constructs the surface on the fly. It is actually represented as a point cloud and sampled as a point cloud. So it has the implicit surface representation that I mentioned in the beginning. Of, of our conversation today. It is end-to-end -end differentiable, and probably what is more important that it runs orders of magnitude faster than, than the massive architecture. So all the pre-computation is about three orders of magnitude faster, and we can do it as part of the architecture on the fly. The inference itself is about uh, 20 times faster. And uh, I should say, uh, may, well, this is again probably a piece of shameless advertisement. One of the reasons why uh, we got this speed up is we are using a library for fast geometric computing, which is called KELPS, Kernel Operations, which was developed by my postdoc, Jean Fidi. And we had a new EPS paper earlier this year that describes it. So if you want to speed up geometric computations, such as uh, nearest neighbors, different types of kernel approximation, convolution type operations on large scale point clouds of medium dimensions, something like up to 1000, this is probably the best that you can you can do it is specifically optimized for 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 gpu architectures so i should say that maybe one last bit of criticism that this paper focused on on the computational side that's why it was published in nature methods now we already have the the crystal structure of these designed proteins that confirm actually very ac accurately that they're uh, they coincide with the with the predicted design structures so that that's the we already at a good stage where this is probably the ultimate proof for a structural biologist that it really works. Can you speak at all to the kind of what goes into the couple of years between, hey, we've uh, we've done this, it kind of works, or you know, it, it works for this problem and getting it ready for the, the standards of the biological journals? Sure. So for for specifically for proteins, and uh, it depends on the problem, but in our case, so you predict the protein, so you design it. So the design usually involves uh, some standard tools. In case of proteins, this is Rosetta. Once you have the design, you need to, to produce it. So essentially what you do, you need to build the protein itself. So the way that it's usually done, 
the sequence of amino acids that describes the protein is encoded as a strain of DNA. So the, it's uh, three nucleotides in the DNA, what is called a codon that uh, represents one amino acid. Then this uh, chunk of DNA plus some extra stuff is given to a cell, and the cell uh, reads out this DNA with its uh, molecular machinery that is used and starts producing these proteins. Then you need somehow to extract them from the cell. So usually you use yeast or the same E. coli that, that I mentioned, so some typical uh, organisms that, that are convenient to work with. So they, they, they produce these proteins, you extract them, you, you purify them, and uh, then you get a bunch of proteins. So then you need to test whether they bind to the target. So usually this is done by putting the, the, the new protein that you designed in some solution with the target and some competitor that, that you know that, that, will, that, that is known to bind to, to the target. And then you measure whether your molecule binds or not. The ultimate proof, of course, is the crystal structure. So you need to crystallize the protein in the lab. This is very capricious because sometimes it can take just a few months to get the crystal. Then you need to do uh, a crystallography. You need to get the, 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 the 3D structure from uh, X-ray diffraction. So this can easily take half a year to a year. So uh, it only begins when you get the computational model. Got it. Got it. And then you started with uh, an earlier computational model, and eventually you mentioned you updated the process to use a later model that was quicker to use. Are, are we kind of evolving to a to a, a state of the industry where the models will be more interchangeable, and you would have been able to kind of update the approach that you use for the paper, kind of mid-process, without you know too many disruptions, or uh, you know, is that is that not the goal, or or not? Are we not close to that? Absolutely. So, so uh, well, the, the model essentially uses the same interfaces. So it inputs some representation of the protein. It, it produces some predictions. So in the new paper, we just reproduced the same experiments that, that we had in the Nature Methods paper, just with a new model, with a new architecture. So it works faster and better. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. So moving beyond papers, uh, you mentioned the library that you used as part of that last uh, project as an example of kind of a new tool that is available for folks doing research on graph neural networks. Are there other you know, tools or projects out there that are noteworthy and new this year? Sure, so I would like to mention probably uh, when it comes to graphs, uh, the Open Graph Benchmark, well, it was uh, technically speaking, it was uh, announced in the end of 2019 at New Rapes. But uh, I think really it took the bulk of the, the critical mass of the usage and also was beefed up substantially this year. So I think it, it is becoming, or maybe already has become, the de facto standard uh, in the community. I think what makes graphs different from, let's say, images, that the, 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 the kind of tasks or the, the number of different tasks uh, is much broader. So you can talk about graphs of very different nature. So it can be small graphs like molecules, it can be gigantic graphs like social networks. It can be tasks such as classifying the entire graph if you want to predict, let's say, molecular properties, or, for example, predicting edges in a social network, which is uh, used for recommender systems. So Open Graph Benchmark tries to, to address uh, many of these use cases. And it has both small and large graphs in different, uh, in different tasks. Maybe another project in which I was involved uh, was uh, the Rexis Challenge, uh, the recommender system uh, conference. 
This was organized by Twitter, and uh, we released probably one of the largest datasets of user engagements. And it was really interesting competition. Uh, many groups participated. NVIDIA was uh, the winner. So I think I, I actually wrote a blog post about uh, Twitter learned from this competition. Uh, uh, we hope that we will be able to organize a better uh, in new version this year as well. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, new this year, but one of the tools that I keep hearing more about is JAX. Have you looked at that at all? Right. So, well, it is it is a tool that is used uh, also for uh, for graphs. I okay. think it is uh, probably still used in research community, not in production. But uh, talking about this, just a few years ago. Right. So, for it's interesting. So uh, interesting that you're bringing this up. So, in different infrastructure projects, both on the hardware and the software side. So, on the hardware side, uh, several chip makers are interested in graph-specific architectures, or at least trying to understand what would it take to design a processor that is friendly for uh, graph-related tasks, whether it's uh, graph learning, graph analytics uh, of some form. Now, I should say that uh, when it comes to chips, the time concerns there are very long. So I I used to work for Intel for many years. So from the moment you design your uh, your architecture to the moment you tape out and commercialize the, the the chip, it takes probably at least four years. By the ML standards, the algorithms that you, uh, that, that, that for which you design the architecture will already become obsolete. So it's a kind of prediction that is very difficult to make. So you need to, to build it not for a specific algorithm, but uh, for a class of problems. And it's very difficult to say what will be uh, the, the leading architecture that will work on these problems in the future. And that's why uh, this is a very challenging but very interesting task. In terms of infrastructure projects, so that was already last year, but now I think they open sourced it. The paper from Alibaba on Aligraph. So this is the, their internal infrastructure that they use for uh, different business cases, from recommender systems to, to probably some some other things. That is an efficient software platform for implementation of different graph learning techniques. So uh, I think the the uptake of these methods by the industry is slow, and you probably don't hear about it uh, much because it just improves the product. So it doesn't really, in at least in many cases, doesn't really open up completely new functionality. Well, Google announced, for example, the use of graph neural networks for Google Maps that substantially improved, I think, the traffic prediction. So Petar uh, Velishkovich, that I mentioned in the beginning, was involved as one of the, the developers. Was collaboration between uh, Google and DeepMind. I also recently uh, seen a paper from Uber where they use graph neural networks to do better recommendations for Uber Eats. So I think the bottom line is that these methods are becoming more and more standard. So it's already not a piece of news when some big company is using graph neural networks in their products. Nice. You've also got top commercial developments. You've mentioned, you know, a few use cases already. Are there? But you, you've got a couple of other ones singled out. The the first is Relation Therapeutic. Tell us about what they're doing. Right. So, well, probably uh, I don't I don't know whether it's a very subjective. Uh, big commercial use cases. It's uh, in the eyes of the beholder. But Relation, uh, it's a British biotech startup. They are developing a graph ML technology for drug repositioning. And this is probably the first startup I'm aware of. Well, maybe second, if I count my own uh, startup, Fabula, that we sold to Twitter last year, that was specifically built around GraphML technology. So I should say, uh, disclosure, I'm on their scientific advisory board. 
so uh, probably my opinion is, is subjective, but I think the unique strength of relation is that it has rare combination of expertise in biology, drug design, and GraphML. And this is at least still for the time being, this is rather unusual intersection. And combining people from these, from these communities under the same roof is rather uh, exceptional. And th that's why I believe that they would be able to, to, to make progress that goes beyond just computational predictions, but will end up really with something that, 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 that could be used in the clinical practice. And uh, well, they, they have some big shots from the pharmaceutical industry that have a lot of experience in drug development and also very familiar names also from the ML community, such as Will Hamilton or, or John Tang, that, that are uh, well-known experts in, in GraphML. So again, this is the, the, the first company in the biotech sector that I'm aware of that positions itself as a kind of flagship GraphML-based company and makes a lot of sense because for drug repositioning, uh, the, the network approach to the so-called network medicine paradigm actually makes a lot of sense because uh, our body and the, the different reactions and different interactions uh, there, they are all interrelated. So uh, th this is a very natural uh, problem in a sense to use GraphML for, uh, for, for these applications. So the second company I would like to mention is uh, Ariel AI. So it's uh, a startup founded by a good friend of mine and collaborator, uh, Yasnos Kokinos. He's a professor at University College London and, and his colleagues. And they're developing deep learning techniques for building 3D avatars from, uh, from videos in real time. And uh, earlier I mentioned CVPR. So at uh, the CVPR, we presented a paper that we did in collaboration with Ariel on accurate 3D hand reconstruction in the wild using uh, a geometric deep learning pipeline. So it is also based on our previous work on spiral mesh convolutional networks. And it was done by my PhD student, Dominique Coulon, who is uh, also an employee of the company. And uh, basically they showed that you can use very, uh, a, a legacy smartphone and iPhone of a few years uh, old that, uh, on which you can run this architecture about 10 times faster than, than real time. And uh, well, I cannot say much about uh, the, the, the company and the prospects due to uh, non-disclosure agreements. I was also an investor in it, but uh, I think this is really cool, both the people and the company and what they're doing. And what is the, you mentioned their, their paper was 3D hand reconstruction? Right, so basically what we do, we have a, a two-dimensional video of a hand, let's say a, a human avatar doing some gestures and uh, you can reconstruct very accurately in real time the, uh, the 3D pose and the shape of the hand. Got it. So there are many interesting applications, well, from maybe more fun stuff like TikTok and building 3D avatars and presenting yourself as a kind of motion capture animated creature, but also, for example, gesture-based interfaces. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is interesting that actually, if I think of uh, my own career, the, the, the startup that I, I was involved in uh, that was sold to, to Intel eight years ago was doing 3D sensors for exactly the same purpose. Now you can do it without 3D sensors. And I think this is an indication of how powerful deep learning or this particular brand of geometric deep learning has become that it doesn't rely on uh, 3D input. Awesome. Well, before we wrap up, uh, any uh, what, what are your big predictions going into 2021 and beyond? Or where do you expect to, what, what's exciting for you and, and where do you expect to see big advances happening? Well, so in, in this field in particular of craft learning, I think, as I mentioned already, 
I, I, will, I hope to see results on generalization of graph neural networks, not only expressive power, but how well they generalize. To see uh, beyond message passing, how we can exploit uh, something smarter than, than, uh, and maybe richer way of aggregating information. Some problem-specific architectures are very interesting. So, for example, physically uh, correct and realistic message passing for molecular graphs, let's say, dynamic graphs. So this is something that is interesting in, in social network applications. Latent graph learning, where you try to build a graph that explains a complex physical system. So this is also something that, that is uh, now rapidly evolving. And this year, we've seen uh, many interesting papers that just probably scratch the, the, the tip of the iceberg. And I would say really real-world applications with domain expertise. And I think here, uh, probably the best strategy, or at least the approach that, that I try to follow, is teaming up with domain experts. Because if you look at problems such, a, such as uh, those that we were discussing today in biology uh, and chemistry, it probably takes you, I think, between five and 10 years to, to get trained in this field. So I think it's very ambitious to assume that now in half a year or a year, computer scientists will get all the, the nuances of these fields. On the other hand, it's probably easier for biologists to get at least uh, the, the, the basics of computer science and, and machine learning. So I think there is a lot of opportunity in meaningful collaborations between people on both sides of the spectrum. And I think now people in the application domains, in fundamental sciences, that maybe had their healthy bit of skepticism about how good machine learning is, I think now they're uh, really uh, excited and interested. So that, that's what I hope to happen in the next year. So basically broader adoption in fundamental science. And uh, I think there it's interesting what will really happen is whether we'll see really some dramatic new discoveries, like, I don't know, a new drug that is uh, discovered by a graph neural network or overall be better methods. So this is not clear. I, I obviously hope for the for the former, but it is probably more likely to see most progress of the later form. So uh, I don't know, better prediction of molecular properties or another interesting domain where uh, graph neural networks are being applied is particle physics, where you model collision of particles and all the, the interesting stuff that happens when, I don't know, two beams of particles collide in the Large Hadron Collider, all the thousands of different uh, things that, that are created in this uh, collision using graph neural networks to detect interesting events that, that might indicate new physics that, that has not, not been known before. And actually for people at CERN, as far as I know, are interested in building hardware that will implement graph neural networks to do better classification of events. Whether this will lead to new physics discovery, and if imagine that it will lead, what is really the, the causal contribution, so to say, of graph neural networks, I think it's disputable. But overall, increasing the, the, the accuracy of these detectors and, uh, and their, their capabilities is an important issue. In terms of trends, more specific things that I believe will happen next year in this field, I think re-emergence of topological data analysis is uh, something that is likely to happen. So topological data analysis has been around forever, I think at least 20 years. It never really took off because it relies on certain handcrafted features that you need to compute and it is really difficult to make them work for practical applications now with deep learning pipelines i think it offers like it happened in many other cases there is an opportunity to build architectures that, that are differentiable end-to-end -end and you can learn some topological losses or topological structures that might now work and we already see some papers in this domain also uh, working on graphs doing, for example, simplicial complexes and uh, persistent homologies on graphs. 
So I believe that this trend will continue. Interesting, probably interesting marriage between reinforcement learning, combinatorial optimization, and graph neural networks. So I mentioned the, the algorithmic reasoning paper by, by Petter in the beginning, but there are some maybe more challenging problems, which is NP-hard problems with graphs, such as uh, quadratic assignment problems or the traveling salesman. And this currently doesn't work well with graphs. I think one of the, uh, one of the issues is really uh, the difficulty to generalize. So reinforcement learning uh, seems to be an interesting opportunity to, to address these, uh, these problems. And it's interesting to see how it will play out. I should say that reinforcement learning in combination with graph convolutional networks is also interesting direction for drug discovery. So reinforcement learning in this case could be used for, for sampling the search space of the candidate molecules and uh, maybe an interesting collaboration to, to look for. And well, I'm also here, I'm biased because I'm involved in this project is the Recover Coalition, which started uh, with Bill Gates Foundation funding for um, drug repurposing for, uh, for COVID-19. Now, you can argue that, that maybe next year COVID-19, hopefully, fortunately, will be behind us, but other diseases still uh, exist and the same methods can be used uh, against other infectious diseases, against cancer. So it's good to be able to develop methods that can be applied to the next pandemic and this will not be as disastrous as, as this one. So uh, what else? Probably what I mentioned already, building graphs to explain uh, complex systems. Interesting topic there is causal inference on graphs. So if you think of a graph as some way of representing some complex system, maybe a biological system, in many cases you want to understand actually what is going on there and, and causal inference in this context might be, might be important. Improved libraries, better benchmarks, uh, probably some evolution of the open graph benchmark, PyTorch, geometric deep graph library, specific libraries for uh, applications such as dealing with proteins. There is uh, a cool new library that is called uh, Graphene, which is graph library for, for proteins. And bro broader industrial adoption, product impact, probably this will somehow pass under the radar, but I think the companies to, to watch will be the, the usual suspects. Facebook, Google, Twitter, and uh, probably many more. Well, again, bias, uh, being biased, I would say that uh, a project that uh, I'm involved in, uh, Hyperfoods, where, which is also a kind of drug repositioning project, but instead of drugs, we are looking at substances in, in food that have similar molecular properties to, to, to clinical drugs. So there, I hope that we'll see first biological or clinical evidence of how accurate these predictions are. And well, this will probably happen anyway for many computational projects that are now being run in this domain. So probably this will be really the moment of truth, how accurate, how good uh, these methods are. And finally, last but not least, well, this is completely different. And this is a big project that I'm also involved in, which is Project SETI. It's a Ted uh, Odasha's project that was announced earlier this year. And we're looking for deciphering the communication of sperm whales. So this is uh, this falls probably under the category of non-human species communication, and there, you, 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 what we are trying to, to to build is a data acquisition pipeline that will allow us to build a longitudinal database, a kind of Twitter of whales that will represent the way that they talk to each other, communicate, and hopefully will discover interesting structures that might be similar or might be completely different from what we see in human language. But most importantly, we would like to use tools that are being used for uh, human language analysis, uh, nature language processing, to study the, the communication of animals that are very different from us. Wow. It's super interesting to hear how 
just you know from the the my first conversations about graph neural nets a lot of the use cases were theoretical and now we're talking about lots of deployed examples and even more work that seems to be just on the cusp of having real world impact it seems like a very exciting time to be in the field absolutely i think there are many opportunities well also on the theoretical side but now i think the applications are mature enough i wouldn't say that all of them are already have materialized but probably they passed the bar when it is convincing for for the domain experts that they should spend their time and their attention looking at these methods definitely so that's what i hope to see more in 2021 is uh, more of these results that bring us closer to the end product mm-hmm. awesome well michael thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit of your world with us uh, lots of exciting stuff great catching up with you once again and have a wonderful new year thank you sam to you as well and to all the listeners happy new year Happy New Year. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.